0: Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 166 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and Andrew Frankel. Um, Now, occasionally we do kind of magazine style episodes where we cover a few different topics. That's what this week's episode is. Uh, We start off by discussing balance of performance and whether or not it's a good thing in racing um, because I'm kind of in two minds about it, particularly after. The other week's twenty-four hours of Le Mans, which was very much influenced by balance of performance. Um, But we also talk about road cars like the BMW i8 um, in what goes up, which is where we look at what's going on in the market. Uh, And we're doing the i8 this week because you can now buy one. Certainly, there's one example in the UK of the i8 listed for less than thirty thousand pounds. Which, well, I mean that is a lot of car for thirty grand. Although quite a lot of miles as well. We'll come to that. Um, And there's a few other bits that we discuss this week. Before we get into it, though, I will remind you all to rate and review the podcast. Uh, And while you're doing it, whichever app you're using, just hit the follow button or the subscribe button. Um, It means you never miss an episode and it helps us a great deal. So please do do that uh, and enjoy the episode. Now, what we don't need to do, Andrew, is really get into the nitty gritty of what happened at Le Mans um, because it's been done. Um, and we're probably a week too late to do that aren't we but I'd I'd like to have a conversation a broader conversation about balance of performance because it's it's been in the news recently hasn't it and I think both you and I have expressed uh, frustrations with it in the past
1: Hmm, definitely definitely I mean it's there to ensure close racing yeah it all depends how, how you approach it because on the one hand There is a very large bit of me which thinks you come up with a rule book and you give it to everybody and the team that does best by building the best cars, um, having the best drivers, having the best strategy wins and that's great. Mm. The problem with that is, as we know, um, is that quite often one team just does that job better than anybody else. And, you know, congratulations to them. But then you get these periods of total dominance, uh, you know, look at what you know Porsche were doing at Le Mans in the yeah you know, in the 1980s they won the race 7 times on the trot in you know, Audi at the beginning of the of this century um and frankly it's very boring and ultimately what it does <laughs> yeah. is it kills the sport yeah, yeah yeah because because you know other manufacturers think well why should we go and fight these guys when they appear to be insuperable and spectators and fans walk away mm. um so ultimately it becomes you know, the way we would all in theory at least like to do it becomes self-defeating. And so balance of the performance is, is is designed to address that. And basically it is success penalties. And I hate the idea, mm. but the reality is, and I don't think we're going to go back into the more too much, is that um, you can create a situation where you have unbelievably close racing. is absolutely thrilling. Um, and if that means a team feels slightly aggrieved because they feel they've done the better job and they feel that they have been treated unfairly for doing that better job because they've received a penalty, um, then maybe that's a price worth paying if the result is a 24-hour race like the one we just had where the outcome was really, really absolutely unknown for at least 22 of those hours. Mm. Uh, And everybody has a fantastic time. And it's only tedious, boring old farts like me who go, put their finger in the air and go, "Uh, actually, that wasn't very fair.
0: Mm. Ah, interesting. Yeah, there are two very clear sides to this argument, and I can see both of them. I can see both of them. Because, as you say, just look at Le Mans. um, Balance of performance, that was the mechanism, that was the reason, really, that after 22 hours, you couldn't say who was going to win the race. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, in that regard, it's exciting. And actually, it gave us um, a different winner. It gave us Ferrari and a great story. Um, but I watch it, and I I do not know quite what I'm watching. Okay, When I watch a motor race, I want great racing, of course. But I also feel like I need to know that I come away from watching it with an understanding of who did the best job, who has yeah. built the best car, which yeah. is the slickest team, who has the fastest, most consistent drivers. Yeah, yeah. It's,
1: it's that thing about, you know, let, let the best man win. Yeah. Well, that's what BOP stops. Mm. You know, there's a good argument. I'm not saying it's a decisive argument, but there's a good argument which says that the best team didn't win Le Mans mm. this year yep um and you and you can go into all the figures and everything else but basically toyota was given a basically it's about a 0.4 of a second disadvantage per lap over ferrari Uh, because of the difference they they, they both got weight added but but toyota got 37 kilos ferrari just 24 and if you extrapolate that over a 24 hour race that adds up to more seconds than the difference between the toyota and the ferrari Mm. at the end of the race Mm. now it is nothing like as simple as that um and if the toyota driver uh hadn't crashed uh two hours before the end and put the result beyond doubt um then you know it would have been a far closer finish toyota may well have won it um and you could say well then he shouldn't have crashed and that's his fault but why did he crash he crashed because he was trying as hard as he possibly could um while uh in a car which toyota certainly thought had been unfairly disadvantaged um so I mean yeah I mean you can slice it up any way you like um to, okay to me I think balance of performance is a necessary evil I think you have to have it mm. where it becomes massively problematic for me is where the people who set the rules in this case the ACO and the FIA say right these are the rules mm. This is the balance of performance and this is how it's going to be applied. And what they said at the start of this year was that they were going to set the balance of performance and they would not change it until, this is the critical word, after Le Mans. Yeah, they
0: said that. They did say that.
1: Everybody signed up to that. And they said the only change they might change make is between the LMH and the LMDH categories to even them up a bit. Well, Toyota and Ferrari were both in the same category, so that's an irrelevance. Um, and then just before the test day, which was itself only a couple of days for more, they went back on it. Mm. And they handed... No, it's, it's simply the truth. Because both Toyota and Ferrari got more weight, but Toyota got more weight than Ferrari. So they decided, completely contrary to what they had already committed to, to give Ferrari a, an advantage over Toyota. Um, why? Well... You could say that Toyota had won every race of the season so far, which it had, and therefore, um, you know, they needed to even things up a bit. A cynic would say that they would not have been blind to the fact that Ferrari winning the Centenary Le Mans on the 50th anniversary Mm. of its most recent participation there is a story that you just cannot not tell. It's Mm. just too good Mm. to not be able to tell it. And so they cynically disadvantaged Toyota and advantage Ferrari so to give Ferrari a better chance of winning Lemoore. That is what the cynics would say. Um, the truth, who knows? Mm. Who knows? I do not think, okay, the only thing I don't agree with um, is the suggestion that Ferrari somehow, and we have seen this, I'm not going to name names, but I have no doubt that a few seasons ago, a team compromised its performance in the early part of the season to get, to get itself a good um bop benefit yeah. because it warned anything else it wanted to win them more. um I, I believe i have seen that no one will ever admit it but i believe i've seen it i do not believe ferrari did that this season i think ferrari came out with a very new with a brand new car which like all brand new cars took a, a lot of bedding in and they got quicker and quicker through the first three races of the season so that by the end of it they were really really close to toyota i think they came out with the best car they could and they developed it as hard and positive My, i do not have any truck with ferrari at all yeah. um but all I would say, it boils down to this. Tell them what the rules are going to be and then stick to them. The,
0: Don't change them at the last minute because it suits your agenda. I agree with that. And the the problem for me is that it leaves a great big question mark hanging over it. And it BOP does leave itself open to manipulation, either by the regulators or by teams, as you've just suggested. Um, now, there's we should distinguish a little bit because in the road car-based categories... Um, maybe BOP is more palatable because it does mean that a big, heavy front-engine GT car can race on a level playing field with a purpose-built mid-engine supercar. You know, I'm thinking yeah, exactly an Aston Martin versus a Ford GT, for instance.
1: Yes, absolutely. So that's absolutely. that's great.
0: Um, yeah,
1: but and actually, and actually, that's the reason that all the manufacturers pile in because yeah. you know what they want to do is get their product in front of the in front of the spectators and and the and viewing public. And you know, if you are Aston Martin you know um, with a with a road car which you've turned into a racing car against a Ford GT which was which was built as a racing Mm. car uh, and from which road legal versions were derived you
0: know you'd have no chance at all Mm. so yeah you know that is absolutely worthwhile but it's it's different in prototype categories um now let's just think a little bit about series that don't have balanced performance and because there's a cautionary tale in that and it makes us sort of understand what the consequences of not having any kind of leveling mechanism might be. So we're recording this the day after the Canadian Formula 1 Grand Prix. Max Verstappen mm. won by 10 seconds um, at a circuit that they suspected wasn't going to suit their car. Yeah. Even, and even so I suspect if he wanted to he could have won that race by 15, maybe 20 seconds. Of course. So he of course that Red Bull particularly with Max driving is dominant it's won every race so far this year the red bull max has won six of the eight and actually the race at the front of formula one this year has not been very good has it it's not been at all exciting to watch that's what that's what you get and that's what you potentially get clearly the best scenario in racing is to have at least two teams on a very level playing field anyway without any kind of bop mechanism um and when it's like that racing is Unlike anything else, it's so spectacular to watch. Twenty Twenty One Formula One. The trouble is, it's so rare, isn't it? It seems so yeah. rare that you have two teams on a level footing, um, and the, the sort of the status quo for a category with no BOP is that one team seems to dominate. Um, and so, so let me let me ask you. Go on. If, if I
1: think. I understand you correctly, um, and this is certainly my view, that the problem with BOP is not the BOP itself, but its implementation. Mm. Mm. That BOP is, when done correctly, is a force for good. Would you introduce BOP into Formula One? And if not, why not? If we think that it's, it's, in theory at least, on paper at least, it's a good thing to have at Le More, mm. why not in
0: Formula One? Okay, so there, for me there is a transparency issue. Um, it, it is open to manipulation, as we know, um, and politics, you know, and why do the ACO make the decisions that they make? They don't tell us. We can't look at a spreadsheet and understand where that's come from. Um, so I, I think that's a good reason for not introducing it in other categories. But even so, even though I understand why it's necessary... I I still find it a little bit unpalatable because I don't know what I'm watching. I don't know who the best driver is, who has built the fastest car. Um, Maybe that doesn't matter if the racing is fantastic. No, I think
1: you're absolutely right. I think it's transparency. And I think, you know, what I would do, and some people call this absolute heresy, um, is that I would introduce um, balance of performance into Formula One um, because I think... That net it is good for the sport, but I would be exactly what you say. I would be totally yeah. transparent about yeah, 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 yeah. it, and I would declare the rules, and every team would sign up to it, and they would know. I don't know how you would um calibrate it, but you know, and and there would be ways around it. You couldn't do it, say, you know, if you win a race by ten seconds, then you get you know ten kilos in the next one because they just make sure they didn't win mm. the race by yeah, ten yeah. seconds. But but there would be ways. Of determining one speed car speed relative to the other, and which could be applied across the board, um, and you know you, you would end up with a far far. I mean, you know, I think there is a chance, isn't there, still that you know Red Bull will do what has not been done by any team since the first season of Formula One in 1950 and win every single race.
0: very mm-hmm. it looks I think very it's, possible
1: i mean you know if if it weren't for the fact that perez appears to you know have completely given up mm. um you know if he was the proper number two and being max's wingman and it was so max always had a perez buffer i mean when he doesn't have that um you know when max is the only driver who can win a race in the red bull then clearly you know max can make mistakes cars can break down and only needs that to happen once and and and, and that possibility has gone um but I still think it's, I don't think it's likely, but I think it still could happen. I think it's as literally as likely to happen now as in 1988 when there were 16 races and the McLaren MP44 mm. won uh, 15 of them mm. uh, with, with Prost and Senna, the world's greatest motor racing double act. Um, and I think, oh, I don't know. And, you know, BOP would ensure that didn't happen.
0: I, I do agree with that. I, I suppose my problem with BOP is, is, is that it's a blunt instrument and of as we say there's no transparency so there no. must be a subtler more nuanced more transparent way of doing it and that would that would be what i would favor i'm not bright enough to come up with that mechanism but there are people out there who could um and so something that is transparent and clear and open and honest but does effectively level the playing field yeah i'd be for that i would be for that
1: even if you did, you know, I mean, they, and they do this in touring cars, don't they? They have reverse grids and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, ultimately, what are you watching? Are you watching a business, uh, and that business happens to be motor racing, are you watching a sport or are you watching a show? Mm-hmm. Um, if your view is that it's all about entertainment, therefore that it's a show, you need to do all this stuff. If it's a sport, you don't have BOP, you just let everybody get on with it. Um and if it's a business, then I guess you have BOP, and then you manipulate it the way you want it to be manipulated and don't tell anybody what you're doing or why mm-hmm. you're doing mm-hmm. it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, Formula One might find itself in a bit of a pickle soon because it's leaning towards show, isn't it? More recently, it's been leaning towards show um, with you know sprint races and... <clears throat> all the stuff that's going on around Formula One Grand Prix these days. Um, yeah. And the, the audiences, as we know, are enormous. But the racing's not been great. And so I, I do wonder if it finds itself looking at... OK, so no, let me let me clarify. The racing at the very front of the pack has not been great. Um, and so maybe they're going to think, do you know what, we're going to lose this audience if we don't spice it up a little bit. It'd be yeah. interesting but to see. But at the
1: same time, you know... There is nothing new under the sun. I go back to the no. original
0: nineteen fifty season
1: when Alfa Romeo won every single race. Can you imagine how boring that was? <laughs> yeah, um, Formula so, One survived you know, that, though, didn't it? <laughs> it survived that, and yeah, and, and lots of periods. You know, rem- remember the start of this century when you know Ferrari and Michael Schumacher. Yeah. You know, I, c- I can remember thinking to myself, a really bad day at the office of Michael is when he comes second. Mm. Mm. It's a really mm. bad day, and that and, <laughs> and that's where we are with Max now. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, if Max doesn't win a race, you know every other driver on the grid would be delighted to come second, apart from Max,
0: who'd be, you know, appalled. Mm. So, yeah. Maybe as F1 fans, we just have to view it, the time that we put in, as an investment. You know, you'll have three or four years that aren't particularly exciting, but the payback is one fantastic one that we discuss for years and years. Maybe that's the way it works. Um, okay, let's leave BOP and motor racing there for now, uh, because I want to do what goes up and I think this one's going to get you quite worked up, Andrew, because just a couple of weeks ago, I spotted, for the very first time, a BMW i8 listed for less than £30,000. That's a cheap car.
1: Less than the price of a new electric Vauxhall Corsa. That's your go-to,
0: isn't it? The thirty-one it grand is. Vauxhall Corsa electric one, yeah. That's the base ah, Vauxhall the Corsa. Yeah, an i8. What would you pay for an equivalent 911? 50? Uh, So a sort of 9-year-old 911, 991. Um, Yeah, probably maybe high 40s or something, but I would guess about that. So the i8 has come down. It's come down a long, long way. Um, Now, this is a high-mileage car. There's only one of them. It's a high-mileage car. It's done um, 103,000 miles. Ooh, that is a lot. Which is pretty good, isn't it? Um, But... Let's just, before we get into the numbers, let's just talk about why we like them. Because, you know, on paper, it's a, it's a plug-in hybrid. It's got this little three-cylinder turbo petrol engine. It's from a Mini, isn't it? Um, it is. It's, you'd think that a 911 with its flat six out back would just be automatically the more appealing car. And maybe it ultimately is. But we like an i8 nonetheless, don't we? It looks fantastic. It still looks good on the road when you see them. It has. That... I think
1: they are f- fabulous cars.
0: Go on, Why?
1: okay why a i'm not re- i'm so much more interested in the way that cars drive than the way they look yeah. um and yet when there was one parked outside here for a while i couldn't walk past it without gawping mm. at it even today when you see one in the street or on the motorway or whatever i think it's just a fabulous looking car it's also it's such a clever car mm. um, and it's such an advanced car i remember comparing it to an nsx which was you know the, the, the second generation nsx and realizing you know the the i had a carbon tub. Um, it could run on electricity only. You could plug it in. You can't do any of those things on an NSX. Um, and it was just so easy to live with. I think people made the mistake of thinking that it was a sports car. It's not, it's a traditional um, GT. Hmm. I love the driving position. I love its sort of languid manners. I love the fact that I could get in and out of the house uh, without disturbing the neighbours. Um, and because it was light, because it was light because you'd only had that little 1.53 cylinder engine which did sound terrific and i know people go oh, yes it was synthesized and it's not a real sound mm-hmm. but every single sound you hear from any modern car is synthesized you know, just mm-hmm. take my word for that um to some extent it sounded great it was more than quick enough it was like sort of four and a half seconds to 60. Yeah. um i thought you know it's not a track car but for undulating roads i thought mm-hmm. it handled really really well it had you know the sort of Vestigial rear seats that you get in 911s and that sort of thing, so you could just stick your shopping or to pinch your kid in the back. um <coughs> I just loved being in it. I did. I had one for a while, and I did thousands and thousands of miles in it. And apart from, okay, I didn't like the attention it got mm. because you would just get but idiots. particularly when
0: it was brand new. It was a, it yeah. was a knit car, wasn't it? It had wow factor. I, I, I got out of that and into a
1: 911, and I became instantly anonymous. Mm i loved it mm. um i didn't like the fact that you could never you always if you're going in a long term car park or a supermarket or a multi-story you always had to find a space at the end because if anybody came and parked too close you literally couldn't get into the car <laughs> um i didn't like that um the boot was small other than that and the other thing was that it, it, you know as someone who pays for their own fuel you know it, it would do 40 plus miles to the gallon mm. everywhere mm. It was such a clever car. Um, It was also, you know, the other thing that BMW did with the Isle, I think because it was so innovative and so advanced and so out there at the time, the last thing they wanted were little things going wrong with it because then it would get a reputation and that would kill the car. So they built it beautifully. I bet, I don't know, but that car you mentioned had done over 100,000 miles. I bet the owner has had bugger all problems with it. Mm. Um, And that, to me, actually, from a second-hand point of view, is as good a reason as any to get into one um because i think and please don't come back and tell me it's gone horribly wrong when you go and buy one <laughs> but my, my guess is that they are extremely robust um and you know a really really great secondhand call now i think they're getting a bit old now so you know the tech won't be quite you know what it is these days and you know and if you're into all your apps and your connectivity and everything else then you know maybe it's not for you but for a certain sort of person who just wants a car that works so well in the real world, which looks that great, sounds that great, is that good to drive, thirty thousand pounds? Mm. Blimey. I mean, I, I've often thought about what I would get just to bimble about in when this business has had a, enough of me, and and up with up there with a with a Cayman and a nine eleven, the I eight has always mm. been up there,
0: mm. and there are you know there there are certainly fewer than five cars on that list, and an I eight is one of them. I did a, when the I/O was brand new, I did a couple of group tests, including one for Evo magazine with, you know, the more conventional rivals, R8s, 911s, um, AMG GT, that sort of thing. And I, you know, never won those tests. And in some ways it kind of felt a bit like the whipping boy because it didn't have the raw power of some of the others. Um, it's not what it's about. No, it's not what it's about at all. Uh, but I remember driving them on some fantastic roads. And actually, really loving the fact that it didn't have the grip of those other cars. Because it doesn't, you know, yeah. relatively skinny tyres. No. And so, yeah. unlike any of the others, it would sort of skate across the road a little bit without you being completely mad. Um, and that, as much as anything, made them so enjoyable to drive. So I, I totally get the i8 thing. And I actually, like you, I just like being in them. Um, because they've got yeah. that amazing sort of architectural cabin. I like that you can put it in electric-only mode and... Zip through town, um, I, I just think they're fantastic. So I did do a little bit of research on how much trouble an almost decade-old i8 is going to be. And, you know, when, whenever you get onto a forum for a, a specific car, you find issues, don't you, because every car has them. Um, well, because that's why people are on the forum. That's why people are on the forum, yeah. So they, people tend to gather there, don't they, and problems yeah. become exacerbated. Uh, but actually... You know, it's not like, as far as I can tell. It's not like there's one thing that totally undermines these cars. One bloke did say that his petrol motor blew up, and he said it didn't cost much to fix—only about ten thousand euros. Um, <laughs> Ooh! Which, but that seems to be an isolated incident. Now, I don't know. But that, that petrol motor—it's
1: a two hundred and twenty-eight horsepower, one point five three-cylinder engine out of a Mini. It should be indestructible. Yeah. So, hopefully, that is isolated. Now,
0: I don't well, know... Yeah, but, yeah,
1: but also, you, you, you don't know whether, I don't know, somebody forgot to put any yeah. oil in it at the last yeah, service. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, could, it that, that could happen for any number of reasons, mm. which has got nothing to do with the way BMW designed the
0: car. Yeah. Now, I don't know, if the, batteries, you know you, you, it, so, if the batteries could be problematic now that they're almost 10 years old. I've not read anything about maybe. that. I suppose it's not impossible. No, um, no but, but, you know, when a car gets a problem,
1: you know, like um you know the engine in the 996 mm. 911 became known to be you know all the v10 um that yeah. bmw built when you have an engine that has a problem you know it doesn't take long for people to know and for reputations to that and people you know talk about it and, and it just becomes a known facet of that car's character you've never got anything like that with the i8 no it's not known for anything going wrong with it no no it's not i mean, like all cars you know, you know nobody's ever designed the perfect indestructible car which will never ever fail no. um but it seems to me that you know the i8 is you know is, is is pretty impeccable compared to you know a lot of
0: other things now so if you don't want an a one hundred and three thousand mile i8 you can get a lower mileage one for about thirty-four thousand pounds. So, you know, with about eighty thousand miles or fewer. Um, so, what would you pay for, like a forty thousand miler?
1: A really, I don't want a roadster either.
0: No, I don't want a roadster. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I would guess that high thirties, maybe forty grand, would get you a good, tidy, not leggy car. I at a, at a guess. Oh. So, you know, it's not like that thirty grand one is a total outlier. But let me no. let me complicate this for you. Go on. Audi R8 V8 manual, 2007, 57,000 miles, 30, yeah. £32,000.
1: Well, we said before on this
0: podcast that's nuts, haven't we? I thought they'd be worth uh, so much more by now. I thought they'd have rocketed. They
1: will one day. It will happen. Mm. It, it, it has to happen. <laughs> um, you're dealing with a sort of slightly different era car. Yep. I mean, they yeah, they're older. They are older. Um, I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't understand that. Uh okay, here's here's the question. What would you rather have? Yeah. yeah. I would rather drive the Audi but live with the BMW. Yeah.
0: That's that's exactly right. Sadly, you can't yeah. unless you're spending 60 grand to get both. Um yeah. but I, I honestly I find it quite tricky to separate those two, which actually reflects really well on the BMW, doesn't it? Because that Audi is a special special car. Um Yeah, and I think I think what it also says is
1: that, you know, I think anybody listening to this knows what we think of Porsche 911s, um, you know, they're pretty much the greatest cars in the world. But they're not the only cars that do that. Mm. And and if you don't, and if you want something which is a bit more, you know, imaginative, um, different, you know, an i8 or an R8 is a
0: fabulous alternative. So I um I, I did ask JBR Capital to look into this, and um, one of the interesting bits of data they got for me was that the average age of a customer. Um, of an R8 is 37. God, actually, that's surprising. I'm 36, and I'm not a year away from buying an R8. Goodness me! And the average age of an I8 customer is 41. So yeah, maybe there is even, something... even that's okay, like, Even that's younger than I thought. I thought the yeah. average age of an I8
1: customer would be like not far short of 50. Mm. I, I, mm. I, I think it's a middle-aged man's car probably why i like it so
0: much <laughs> but i kind of agree and it's uh, it, it does make sense doesn't it that the average age of i i8 customer is higher not much but a bit higher um yeah either way you know however you're spending that kind of money two fantastic options there they really are very very special cars What Goes Up is sponsored this week by car finance specialist JBR Capital. We've been working with JBR Capital for a while now and it's been a brilliant partnership for us. High-end car finance is all the company does, meaning it understands the car market and car buyers better than most. So before you buy your next sports car, supercar, classic car, luxury car, even a brand new car... Go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Visit jbrcapital.com or click the link in description. And this bit is important. Tell them the Intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.
2: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
0: Now, let me just talk about another car that I went to go and look at last week. This is, it's called the Niobolt EV. Um, it's kind of like a resto mod Series 1 Lotus Elise. And we took a real interest in it because um, our contributor, Julian Thompson, designed the Series 1 Elise and he's redesigned it now um, for this uh, electric reimagining of the Series 1 Elise. Um, It looks fantastic in person. It's very clearly um, inspired by the Series 1, but just with more muscle, with modern detailing um, more dramatic more supercar like proportions basically um, so I, I thought it looked really cool and the technology is interesting it is an EV um, it's based on a, <clears throat> a late model Lotus Exige um, so they, they say that it would weigh under 1500 kilograms, maybe under 1300 kilograms. they're being a little bit coy about it um, but it's got this clever battery and actually, in many ways, it's the battery that's more interesting because it's quite small. It's a 35-kilowatt-hour thing. It's very is small. Diddy. It's like a
1: mini-E
0: battery. Yeah, it's Diddy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's a single electric motor with 470 horsepower, so it would feel potent. There's no question about that. But the clever thing about this Niobolt battery is that um, they've. it's a really innovative thing. So it's still lithium iron, and for... Many, many years, all the research and development on lithium-ion batteries has basically revolved around the cathode. Um, They've turned their attention to the other part, that anode, um, which is actually what determines how quickly you can charge a battery. Um, You've already lost me. (laughs) (laughs) But the the upshot is that on a very fast charger, 350 kilowatts, so that is a a rapid charger. There aren't too many of those around. You can go from literally 0% to 100% in six minutes. Um, wow which, so why isn't everybody doing this if it was as simple as just switching from yeah. one end of the battery to the other <laughs> well it's the, the, there's, it's a proprietary technology and I'm sure it's heavily protected so Niabot will hope that everybody will be doing it soon and making them very wel- wealthy um, and that's all wonderful and actually you know 0 to 106 minutes is something but you're probably you never run it down to naught, do you so at worst you're going from 5 and you might only run it up to 80 so well, you're going to do that in three and a half, four minutes if you have yeah, you the are, right. You are because time it'll always,
1: it's always the last ten percent which takes longest yeah. to go in. Yeah. Um, so yes, I mean, if you, were, you you're they, they they usually sort of quote a sort of twenty to eighty time. Mm. That's the sort of standard charge mm. um, cycle that people talk about. Um, you know, you could probably hold your breath in the t- <laughs> little, I mean, certainly by the time um, you've gone inside, yes, you know, at a pee, come out again, your car's charged. Yeah.
0: Like filling up with petrol, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Except you don't have to hold the the lever. Um, Now, the interesting thing about this is it it sort of opens up a new world of EV driving. And wouldn't it be better if we had a fantastic charge network? Um, (laughs) Very light EVs, and and, uh, there you go, and EVs with much, much, much smaller batteries. Yeah, and this technology, which means they can be charged very quickly, and it, it would make electric cars. Much lighter, significantly lighter, more fun to drive, particularly electric sports cars. We know they're coming. Um, they would use far fewer precious earth metals because the batteries are smaller. That's a better way, isn't it? Rather than having an enormous 100, 120 kilowatt hour battery that takes so long yeah, it is, to charge. It is, it
1: is a better way. I mean, you'd still have to stop more often, even if you weren't stopping for very long. Yeah. It's like you're sort of in and out in the pit stop. People say it was done a 2.4 seconds pit stop, but actually the pit stop take, still takes 20 seconds. You've still got to come down the pit lane and go out the other end. And that, you know, you still have to do that regardless of how big your battery is. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I don't particularly enjoy service stations. I don't particularly enjoy stopping. I just like, that's why I used to love diesel cars because you go, mm. you know, you could drive from here to Geneva without stopping. Um, so you still have to stop. So I don't think it's a, it, it's the sort of, ultimate solution to everything but it's got to be better you're absolutely right than particularly with sporting cars with really heavy cars with these really profligate massive batteries you know batteries that weigh as much as an entire car Mm. you know you can i I, I don't know exactly but you know a 110 kilowatt hour battery probably weighs the same about the same as a caterer
0: yeah the 120 kilowatt hour battery in a rimac weighs 600 kilos there you go
1: yeah, <laughs> which is more than a cadrum. <laughs> yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's, it, it's got to be way so, so, so the question
0: is, are they going to make it? They're going to make one. They are going to build a, a proper development mule, which is going to run, um, start running in November. Uh, I hope it would be great to have a go, wouldn't it? They don't know. They don't know if they're going to build um, a few for customers. And it'll always be low volume if it does go into production. Um, I think the trouble is that once you've put that battery and everything else in it it becomes extremely expensive um and it's it's sort of at odds with the whole point of a lotus elise isn't it to have a very expensive sports car
1: but it's not really a lotus elise anymore it's yeah you know, it looks like that but it's a it's a sort of technology and also i think that you know having you know julian involved both i guess in the original car's design and this car's design um it's quite something um mm-hmm. I guess I presume they're just waiting to see whether the, whether the demand's out there. Whether enough people bang on their door, got to have one of these. No, um, no
0: one who's built and they're, okay, they're very different cars. They have two thousand horsepower and seven-figure price tags. No one who's built one of those has yet put out a press release saying, "Hurrah, they're all sold." It's interesting, isn't it? It's and they've been around a little while now. They've oh, been they at a have? lot of shows. They've been yeah. on a lot of tele shows. In lots of magazines, um, yeah. and actually, you know, there is speculation out there that the likes of the Rimac Nevera, Lotus Avaya, the Piniferina Battista, that they're they're not selling, um, and perhaps that weighs on the minds of anyone wondering if they should, but put a car of that kind, even if it costs much much less, into production. So, but if it was me, and I
1: had the choice of, and I don't, I'm, I'm going to make numbers up. Um, yeah, something like a pinafrina batista it's a seven figure car mm. but let us say you know i'm I'm a wealthy bloke would i rather have a car that was designed by julian that was light um and fun innovative. and still fast and innovative for half the price mm. a third of the price mm. absolutely because mm. they're both toys mm. You know, you're never going to go, um, you yeah, know, use one as your daily driver. So, ultimately, these are just automotive recreations. Um, and I really like the way the car looks. I really like its history. I like the technology. Um, so, if if I were in the market for a car like that, and I absolutely am not for, for, for more than one reason, um, I'd just be more interested in, in Julian's car.
0: Okay. Would you be more interested in the Porsche Mission X?
1: Possibly. Have you? Yeah. Did you
0: have a look at this? It was announced.
1: During yeah, the month, I have mean, been
0: it? I I I've been doing that rarest of rare yeah. things
1: for uh, for a freelance. Life. I've been on holiday for a fortnight, mm. um, so I'm not as close to it as. Um, but we should talk about it. So um, this
0: is Porsche. Um, they released this Mission X concept, and apparently yeah, the decision yeah. as to whether or not it'll be put into production is yet to be taken. But we know about Porsche concepts, though, <laughs> don't we? We've seen this so yes. often before. They're going to build it. We think. They're gonna build it, and it's a successor to the um, 918 Spider. So it's in that 959 Carrera GT, 918 bloodline. You know, top rung Porsche hypercars, um, and it's it's all electric. And all they've said so far is that it will have a one to one horsepower to kilogram ratio. Um, yeah, and some have speculated that that's around 1500 of each. I th- yeah. I think it'll be more. I think it'll be more. I think it's probably seventeen hundred of each. Um, and if it does go into production, they say it's essential that it's the fastest road legal car on the Nürburgring Nordschleife. As if that matters.
1: Not just fastest EV, fastest, fastest, fastest road legal, road car. legal car. Yeah, so, so fast it's, got, got, it's, it's, got sub,
0: it's got to do a sub six and a half minute lap. Yeah, round. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> rapid, um, and. Uh, <laughs> What to say about this? Okay, what I will say is that it's very interesting that Porsche is as committed to synthetic fuels more so than any other car maker, um, and yet is still pursuing this all-electric powertrain hypercar thing. Um, it shows that they're broad-minded at least. Um, but uh, and perhaps Porsche has enough cachet to overcome the the sort of the, the scepticism around very high performance evs that appears to be out there at the moment which seems to be why the existing players in that market are not selling fast enough so perhaps perhaps the porsche would sell but they'd be a little bit hesitant wouldn't they given what's going on in the market
1: you just never know those guys do you i mean what they're so good at is just sitting back and watching everybody else make the mistakes first and then
0: going okay so and and, and,
1: and then go okay so this is how we're going to do it Mm. um don't know. Interesting.
0: Did you like the way it looked? Quite. Yeah. Quite. Yeah.
1: I wasn't that's knocked the, that's out the right by word, it. isn't
0: it? Quite.
1: Yeah. I wasn't knocked, knocked out by it. Not the way that I was knocked out by the Carrera GT, mm. um, and indeed the 918. Mm. Um, but you know, it probably won't look exactly like that when it comes out.
0: No. And I do wonder if it's supposed to preview a new Porsche. And I know you hate this expression, design language. Um, if it, if it does, I hope they sort of refine it a little bit because I, yeah, I wasn't blown away. Perhaps it's one of those cars that when you see it in person and you get a better sense of the proportions and the stance, um, it looks better. But I have to say, I didn't, I, currently, I don't love it. Let's do the listener question then. Do we, should we do some Newey first? Yeah, I just think, I think we should just do some Newey first. Yeah, I do. I think it's just a, you know, are you going to do that after the listener question? No, we'll do some Newey first because actually I'd like to talk about him. And um, just to tee it up, I will just point out that the Formula One uh, Canadian Grand Prix podium was just fantastic. Max on top, yeah. Fernando Alonso next to him, Lewis Hamilton next yeah. to him, and yeah. Adrian Newey up there representing Red Bull as the winners. Yeah, yeah. Goodness me, that is that's the cream of the crop, isn't it? They are the three yeah, best that... drivers in F1. I think there's no question yeah. for me. Um, with the standout designer, uh, it was fantastic to see and. Someone I did take a screenshot of this actually. Someone counted all their um, their Grand Prix wins and it was three hundred and seventy-six between them. Wow. That's ridiculous. No, it can't be. Well Newey's got two hundred. Oh Lewis, Newey, Newey, yeah, well you put Newie Yeah, 20. Lewis has got hundred and three. Max forty one, Fernando thirty two. Yeah. but uh, I just thought it was so cool to see those four guys up there as the as the very best of the bunch. So it was Newey's 200th victory as a Formula 1 designer.
1: Yeah. Now, put that into context. If Adrian Newey were a Formula 1 <laughs> constructor, yeah. a company in his own right, that one man would be the second most successful Formula 1 constructor of all time. Second most? Second most. Ferrari have won more races. I think they won about 240. Mm. Nobody else has got close to 200. Just Newey. <laughs> <laughs> just knew him. and he's done it over a period of just over 30 years where ferrari have done it in a period of well i mean however long before we'll 73 years mm. Mm. Uh, so his his achievements in i suppose in in his field are absolutely unparalleled you know he has you know one person has won designs that have won races across a 30-year period he also went to forget he also yeah. won two titles in indycar yeah car in the u.s um and if you haven't read his book how to build a car Mm. which came out in 2017 just go and get it it is such i mean it's kind of a biography and it is a biography it's an autobiography it it talks an awful lot about his life uh, and that sort of thing Um, but it's all seen through the prism of the various things that he designed how he designed them and what it was about them which gave them the edge that they so often had over everybody else. And you think of the people that he has designed, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? Well, to me, it is absolutely amazing that, you know, this year, without any doubt at all, um, Max Verstappen will win the world title in a car designed by Adrian Newey. The first person to win a world title in a car designed by Adrian Newey? Nigel Mansell. Oh! He could
0: be Max's dad. You know,
1: the second one was <laughs> Alain Prost. You know, Alain Prost was, you know, was racing cars in the was he in formula one in the 1970s i mean it's just
0: mm. the eras he has spanned and how the technology has evolved and he's
1: kept up with it. Uh, exactly total and and all the eras that he's gone through you know all remember all the active era and all that sort of stuff mm. that's sort of come and gone and whether they've been you know atmo cars or turbo cars or hybrid cars or or whatever he has always just managed to and we can't you know, well, obviously you know now as a whatever he is he's a director of engineering or whatever you know it's not just him he has yeah. a team of hundreds and hundreds of people um but ultimately he has ultimately you know but i think what happens is with with these people now is the team go off and they say this is what we think we should do and then he go, he looks at him and he goes yes or no mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he is necessarily sitting there designing the car. Maybe he does sketch out the. I mean, I do remember when I went to see him recently, there was still a drawing board in his office, yeah. which I was amazed to see.
0: Mm. I think, famously, he still um, uses it, yeah.
1: He still uses it. Um, and, you know, Adrian must be 64, 65 now, but he, he, he appears to have lost none of his. In fact, in fact you, know, you could say that, you know, certainly the car. Um, the car from last year and this year i mean the dominance has just been absolutely unbelievable he's lost none of his edge and yeah i just thought that on the occasion of his Mm. 200th win um we ought to shout it out and go you know congratulations he's also um i don't know him at all well but i've met him a few times um he's one of those guys that if you show a level of a bit of enthusiasm and a bit of knowledge um then he'll just suddenly engage with you mm. and when i went to interview him last year i think it was last year yeah i think back in the last year i sat down with him and we had a like a sort of 20 minute maybe half an hour slot um, and he did say i really do have to be done at the end of that and an hour and a half later we were still talking um and you know and i asked him about the center accident and and all that sort of thing and he was incredibly um honest about that and yeah i just really like the guy Mm. i just really really like the guy Mm. so yeah congratulations adrian um absolutely an achievement as outstanding as any
0: i can think of in the whole field of motor racing frankly absolutely right yeah fantastic and actually your interview with him for the last blast podcast is <clears throat> on the ti app and website if anyone wants to go and listen to it now um totally agree totally agree outstanding achievement um okay so to wrap this episode up we're just going to do a listener question this one comes from dewey it's a good question
1: huh Is
0: that by good you mean i'm going to find it impossible to answer uh yeah but, yeah, but three choice you know too much choice um okay and it's, we have to forget the the sort of realities of it here um, huh. but the question is if you could win any motor race in the world what would it be and what car would it be in and so the car also defines the era so it doesn't matter how old you are when you were born you can choose any era any car any race
1: oh that's no, that's just easy
0: yeah, okay I, no it's going to be Le Mans in a Porsche 917 isn't it correct of course it is <laughs> okay but what would come close for you to did you have a think about the Indy 500 or Monaco or... no 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 <laughs> absolutely not no none of the above um no um
1: it would have been nice to well, i suppose uh, no i mean no nothing Sorry. comes close if, to i mean the 1000 k in 1973 in a ferrari 312 pb mm. that would have been good mm. um the <laughs> more again in a porsche 962 that would have been good or a jaguar xjr no but no i mean it's, it, it, there, there's only one there's only one answer to that question mm. And it's L'Amour in a 5-litre, 5-speed, short tail 917.
0: There you go. You can't see this, but Andrew's grinning broadly while he describes that. Um, So I totally believe him. Okay, well, I think mine would be Rally Monte Carlo. And I would do it in... It's not a race. uh, Yeah. uh, I think, actually, his question said of any kind. So I'm counting it. Um, I'm doing it in in the late 90s in a two-door Impreza WRC. I'm 13 years old. So it's an even better achievement. Um, yeah. And I, was, I was six when I won the more <laughs> on my 917. <laughs> Goodness me. Congratulations. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'd, choo- I'd choose the Monty. To have won the Monty during that era um, in that car, yeah, that's what I'd take. That's a fun question, Dewey, so thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> please keep your questions coming across because they're good fun. They're a nice way to end the episode, and we'll do it again next week. See ya!
1: Bye.